Um, I'm picking the next one is number 298, who is Michael Miller. Wow, okay. Oh. Didn't really expect that. Um, yeah, documentarian. I think it's our first documentarian. He's done a lot of politically charged uh, movies, but I don't know if I've seen many of his films, really. I think I've only seen Fahrenheit 9-11 and um, Bowling for Columbine. Me too. Oh, I saw the... But... but- Oh, Cap- there's one is it capitalism a love story or i can't i they, 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 some of them run yeah, into each other that. actually because i think they're they're i think they've gotten kind of more and more sort of loose haven't they really more sort of scattershot really so I, I can't remember exactly which one i saw but it was one maybe from around the time of the the financial crisis so probably from about 2008 or 9 i think i think it's capitalism a love story which i didn't didn't impress me as much as the other two that i'd seen but I remember him from the TV days. Um, it was something nation. Michael Moore's something nation. Mm, um, I know the one you mean. Yeah, I've forgotten now. <laughs> that was another. Would it be an be an interesting episode? Oh, it was just one. called TV yeah. Nation. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I it remember. Be... I watched that. That was uh, he's two um, back in the nineties, mm, I guess. He's one of the class of documentarians who basically, well, most not documentarians are. Just directors that don't actually engage and be a presence on camera. There's a handful that do, and he he's certainly one of them. I don't think he's one of the more enigmatic ones. Um <laughs> but yeah. He's an interesting character. Yeah. Mm. He turns up in Team America World Police as well. Because mm. <laughs> there's the uh, you gotta process that episode on two levels. There's the character that Michael Moore is, and then there's the documentarian, and there's mm. a there's a shift there, there's a schism there, which would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, well, TV Nation was Louis Theroux's sort of uh, breakthrough as well, wasn't it? Mm. Rob and welcome to Directors Uncut, season two of Directors Uncut. And on this podcast, we put filmmakers from all corners of the globe onto a huge list that covers everything from Iranian minimalism to Bollywood spectaculars. Uh, then we turn it into a lottery of directors by using a random number generator to pick a name out of the hat. Whatever name comes out, myself and a rotating cast of guest hosts discuss them and their work through two films. This week, I've been joined by Graham. Hello there. Hello. And Andy, hi there. Hey, yeah. And it had to be a big name for the first episode of season two. Mm. Um, I don't know whether this is the one I was expecting, because this episode is Michael Moore. Yeah, I mean, saying that Michael Moore's divisive is a statement that's staggeringly obvious, but um, I think he's divided you and me before, hasn't he, Rob? I'm not sure, has he? I'm... I, I I won't put words in your mouth. I remember you not being a fan. Yeah, it was probably in I don't know. I've said a lot of things over the years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you hope people remember none of them. But there we go. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's just open it up with the. I mean, it's a hard question to ask because uh, he's another one of these directors who's been around seemingly forever. But um, mm. where did you both first hear about Michael Miller? For me, it was this movie. It was, Bo- well, one of the movies that we are going to go and talk about. I should maybe uh, caveat that with um, Bowling for Columbine. Mm. Um, 
I was at an age where, so that came out 2002, wasn't it? So I was about 15. Um, an age where you're kind of getting political leanings and finding out things that make you angry and uh, getting a kind of better understanding for, especially at that time, a kind of shit post 9-11 world. Um, oh, yeah. Which obviously Columbine was um, that was ninety nine that happened, wasn't it? So it was pre nine eleven. I think was it two thousand and one? I think it was my. No, I think it's ninety nine. It was Clinton. Clinton was in charge when Columbine happened because it was the same yes. day that he dropped a silly amount of bombs on Serbia. No, Syria. 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 And so Clinton. So yeah, but anyway, yeah, it was them. It was just kind of that era of being angry and not realizing why, and this kind of movie like, helped you find out why you were raging <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. and it, was, it was yeah it was that I imagine it's the same answer for you Graham but yeah. uh, I, I think slightly earlier I'd been dimly aware of him before this um, I'd seen some episodes of the Awful Truth the Channel 4 series he did although I didn't see the one before it uh, TV Nation which I've seen in retrospect and that has a, an alarmingly young Louis Theroux on, among its correspondent roster. Uh, yeah, he just came out of the womb looking like that. He was never young. <laughs> You'd be surprised, man. But yeah, I think <laughs> this would certainly be the first one of his movies that I saw, definitely. Hmm. I think I was the same as Andy, really. I think uh, Borland for Columbine for me. Hmm. It was just, uh, it was one of those really incendiary movies at the right time, at the right place, with the, the right voice in it. Yeah. And it pissed off a lot of people, but we will get into that later, I assume. We certainly will, yes. Um, so, which which one do you want to do first? The two movies we picked, and um, we try to have two movies that represent different aspects of a filmmaker's style. So, Bowling for Columbine is one, and the other one we did, or we're doing, I should say, is his sole effort to tell a, a normal story. It's not a documentary, um, and that would be Canadian Bacon. So... Canadian Bacon or Balling for Columbine? Which one do you want to tackle first, you two? I, I enjoyed Canadian Bacon a lot more than I thought I was going to, so I'm happy to go with whatever, genuinely. If there's a positive or negative to end on, um, to kind of continue with, um, I'm quite happy. Oh, should, should we jump in on Canadian Bacon then? If that's Because uh, I think that'll be the discovery for most people. Mm. Oh, yeah, I mean, I had no idea he'd, he'd done this, this yeah. sort of thing before. Good evening, Edwin S. Simon reporting. NBS News has obtained Pentagon documents that show our neighbor to the north, the sovereign nation of Canada, has embarked on a military program aimed at the United States. Canada, known for ages as a polite and clean country, has, under a socialist majority, undertaken a massive military buildup on its border with the United States. I don't like Canada. It's freezing cold. Canada owns more of the U.S. than any other country. The Canadians, they walk among us. William Shatner, Michael J. Fox, Monty Hall, Mike Myers, Alex Trebek, all of them Canadians, all of them here. Is Canadian Prime Minister Clark MacDonald a member of a satanic cult? Most of Canada's vast military technology has been built and supplied by the United States. 
The Canadian National Tower in Toronto, erected to transmit nuclear attack warnings from radar stations in northern Canada, is now solely in Canadian hands. It is the height of six American football fields, or five Canadian football fields, as if Canadian football really counts. What would be the psychological motivation to erect a huge, long, rigid shaft? Does somebody want to have a, a crack at the, the the concept, the plot behind this one? Because it's a dense one. There, there is quite a lot going on, yeah. But at the core of it, um, a major defence manufacturer is going bust because the Cold War's over and there is no one to bomb anymore. Uh, this is causing terrible knock-on problems uh, with unemployment and suicides in the region where it was uh, where it was formally based. So a group of people at the Pentagon decide to come up and with a fictional war. They manufacture a war on the Canadian border, and it follows two characters played by John Candy and Rhea Perlman, who were sort of good Foursquare patriots who, as good Foursquare patriots, find themselves being utterly conned into participating into this ridiculous non-existent war. As good of a description as you're ever going to get there, because there is a lot going on in this one. Um, the thing that stood out for me is I never knew that this was um, John Candy's final ever role. Yeah, which gives it a that. weird vibe. Yeah, it gave me a weird feeling when there's that joke about him like running to the top of the uh, is it the CN Tower in Toronto, and it's not a great joke. In at the start of it, but knowing that the guy who was playing this joke died of a heart attack pretty soon afterwards, you think, Oh, yeah, could have uh, <laughs> shaved that one out, really, couldn't you? Yeah, mm. yeah, but you like this one, you were saying, Andy. So, well, <clears throat> I liked it a lot more than I expected. I was going to like, I thought it was going to be, to be honest, having only obviously. Only seen Michael Moore documentaries up until now, um, and not having seen any of the TV shows or anything like that that it was involved in. Um, I didn't really have a feel for how it would be, but it's got quite similar humour to how he is mm. in these documentaries, very similar humour to it. Um, and also the kind of points it picks up on in terms of unemployment in the States and caused by. A, a kind of broken military contract, obviously with the end of the Cold War, is very similar to how he kind of portrays Flint, Michigan and, and Columbine. Um, so it was quite uh, interesting to see that, I mean, there's about 10 years between the two movies. A bit less, yeah. A bit less. Seven, Bacon's kind of mid-90s, I yeah. think, yeah. But it's still the same themes that are carrying on, and that was something I'll kind of come back to when we go into Columbine, but... Um, yeah, I, 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 good fun with it. I thought John Candy was great in it. Um, good cameos from like likes of Rip Torn and oh man, Rip Torn, <laughs> he's great in it. <laughs> and uh, Dan Aykroyd having a brief kind of appearance. It just looks like be great wee bits in it, but it was it was a, a unwasted ninety uh, ninety hundred minutes. It's surprisingly fun. Is it? Mm. You don't picture. Michael Moore with this phase of American comedy sort of started mid eighties until the the nineties and that crew of Saturday Night Live as like Dan Aykroyd mm. and Bill Murray and all these people you don't really associate that with 
the guy who made Bowling for Columbine. So it, mm. it took me a bit of a time thing. Hang on, am I supposed to find bits of this funny? Is this a comedy? <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on here. <laughs> well, it also starts with probably the bleakest stretch of the film, which is Kevin J. O'Connor's character who's just been laid off from this massive defence contractor. He's going to jump off a dam, but which is dark enough as an opening for a film, but it, it does lead you to suspect that he's about to assassinate the president. And I am... I am kind of loath to say, you know, oh, you couldn't get away with that these days. But Jesus, you couldn't get away with that these days, could you? No. Well, no. I mean, there's a gag off that that says uh, if you, uh, if the policeman stops a potential suicide from jumping, you get twenty five dollars. But if they jump, you get fifty. Yes. <laughs> At the bottom, it's got a Ria Perlman and John Candy just begging people to shout. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is that is so. I didn't even look into this movie at all until like, I never read a synopsis or anything. Didn't look at the cast list. So then the first point where I realised John Candy was in this is when he's telling a guy at the top of is it the top of Niagara Falls to jump. Yeah, he's just yes. saying jump, jump, because like, he wants the extra money. And it's like, how many have we got this week? Well, that's nine. This will be nine after this, like four hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's, it's dark, dark humour, but it was really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's very surprising, though. I mean, it's not subtle in any way, shape, or form politically, is it? It's, it's clearly by the same man um, who has an axe, a huge, huge axe to grind. Hmm. And although I think there are things that don't quite work in it, I think politically it remains absolutely on the money. I think that the critique of the american defense industry i mean does it at some point doesn't someone maybe it's alan alders the president doesn't he say well you can't just have a war against terrorism it's like, well yeah actually turns out you can <laughs> yeah yeah it's he's very well cast in this as well uh i mean just across the board it's an excellent cast fabulous cast alder i think is inspired a bit by peter sellis's president in dr strange love where he's not a ridiculous guy. He's just too much of a nice liberal to be any use in this situation. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he was great in it. Um, the kind of where he's introduced and Rick Tones want to start fights with anyone that's kind of crossing the president and he doesn't understand why he's not getting the the kind of great backing from the crowd that are there at the the weapons auction where they're selling like surface to air missiles for twenty five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> is it hackers the name of the company, isn't it? The hacker president, hacker yeah. defence and he's the 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 head of hacker defence is furious because all these weapons are just getting bought up for pennies and <laughs> it's just yeah the um what's the actor's name, sorry, the president again? I forgot oh, to write that down. Alan Alder. He's great in it throughout. Like he's yeah. just this kind of meek eh, Wilton guy who doesn't have any sort of real power. Yeah. Who is trying to find a way to gain some sort of traction with the American people and I mean he fails at every turn, but he gets help basically. Oh yeah, I mean uh, I think most MVP has to be ripped on. He's this Rip character on is yeah, it's the MVP in most movies he's in, in my books. Yeah. What a guy. Um, he's playing this character who you see a lot in sort of uh, political thrillers, the sort of military advisor to a political leader. Mm. Mm. 
but he takes it to sort. Of, I mean, even this sort of com- comedy ex- uh, exaggeration of this character—it's been done many, many times before. It's just the absolute glee of which he says everything, sadistic, <laughs> with, yeah. with that voice. It's it's a thing of beauty, honestly. He's hilarious in every scene he's in. Yeah, it reminded me kind of of the the sort of army general in Mars Attacks. Yeah. Where everything's very over the obviously this was this would have been before Mars Attacks, wouldn't it have? Um yeah, at the same time. About the same time. Yeah, they're very similar type of characters <clears throat> who just go for a kind of extreme reaction first and then see what will happen. Although in saying that, he's very much against fighting the Russians, isn't he? He's the one that he, does he want to fight the Russians? I think it's kinda torn a wee bit out of torn. He calls, I think yeah. he he calls them soft for surrendering. <laughs> there's some nuance to him it's like he's there are real villains in this movie but they mm. tend to be on the more corporate side of things yeah. the defense contractors mm-hmm. torn is he's a playing a ridiculous guy but there's some humanity to him i think oh yeah yeah he's very funny though i mean just the way he says lines is i'd happily beat both of you to death uh just the way he says this stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's excellent yeah um I honestly think it falls to pieces a little bit um, in the second half. Mm-hmm. I think there's some very good stuff in the second half, but I think it suffers from the fact that the film doesn't quite decide. It doesn't seem to have quite settled on how it wants you to see Boomer, the John Candy character. Like, on the one hand, he is a grotesque kind of ugly American jingoist and this is a political comedy about war so he's kind of a bad guy but I feel like casting John Candy and focusing on the relationship he has with his wife is almost kind of hedging your bets. Moore doesn't seem to know how likeable or unlikable he wants this character to be and the more it starts to rest on his shoulders it it becomes more uneven for me I think. It is a degree of colorblind. Well, I don't know whether that's the right phrase. I can't think of a phrase that'd be uh, accurate, but nationality blind casting. Yes. John Candy is Canadian. <laughs> that is quite cute, actually. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that Dan Aykroyd's American and he plays a very, very, very broad Canadian um, in a cameo. Aykroyd's Canadian, isn't he? I'm not sure. I always thought he was American. I mean, obviously, I'm British, so I can't no, tell the difference between Americans and Canadians. No, he's just, Canadian too. I think just everybody yeah. that got to uh, play in this is all they're all Canadian. <laughs> the best American actors are Canadians. Like yes, Ryan Reynolds. Is Gosling Ryan Gosling? Is he Canadian? Ryan. Yeah, both Ryan's. Canadian mm. Canada is one of the biggest exports of Ryan's. Uh, my <laughs> wife says yes, and she's she'll be an expert on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's um yeah the the kind of the end part is where it's at its weakest. Like it kind of just yeah. almost set piecey. Like mm. and I kind of I did lose a bit of interest in it once it gets away from the more I say intrigue, but the more um the Machiavellian stuff. Yeah, I think is the good stuff. Yeah, once it starts getting into John Candy trying to uh, like black out the Canadians' uh, electricity and. It's things like that. Yeah, I just kind of lost a wee bit of, a wee bit yeah. of traction with it. But it's like that that line, isn't it? When it's absurd, <laughs> grotesque characters manipulating people, it shouldn't be funny, but it is because the people who are doing it are so absurd and they're so grotesque. But when you get scenes like uh, an elderly couple knitting 
are the guards for the entire national grid for Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and they're, and they're really proud of that fact as well. It's a line, <laughs> yes, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit national lampoonsy. I don't know if that's like a legitimate complaint, but national lampoons, it, it was like such diminishing returns. When it was yeah. good, it was great, but when it was bad, it was sort of just tacky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of what Moo is trying to do is to sort of Trojan horse something that's quite subversive into the the framework of a kind of national lampoony style comedy. But in the end, despite having a lot of good stuff in it, it does just tip over a bit mm-hmm. for me. It felt kind of <clears throat> like a proto Mulrats for me, <clears throat> the style of comedy of it, like um, slapsticky and situations where certain characters shouldn't be in and like Kevin Smith at his maybe depending on your thoughts on Mulrats worst um, I like Mulrats but um, it's not one of his kind of more well renowned and well thought of movies but if de- I felt like there was a, a definitely Kevin Smith style to it not as clever in terms of it's the kind of language used in the script and things like that, but um, but to it to his lesser extent, I would think, and not as vulgar, obviously. Is no, it just no. because Kevin Smith has been obsessed with Canada for the past decade or so? <laughs> Could be that as well. <laughs> he did a Canada trilogy, didn't he? Starting yes. with uh, yeah. Tusk, and the world just ignored it after that. I think uh, was it Red State? Was that the Canada? No, that's um, that's very American. That's uh, definitely yeah, it was, uh, so. It was, yeah. of course, it is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, it's it's such a weird outlier for his career. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can't. Maybe maybe it's just because it, I know it didn't happen, but I can't imagine a world where he would go more heavily into fiction directing. I think there's always a part of him that wants to be a pamphleteer, to see something happening in the news and then write, find, making a film about it. And documentary is obviously the best way to make those films. But I don't think it's a disaster, which you, you would think, looking at it as his only fictional film, you would think it might be a disaster. Mm-hmm. But it's got some good stuff in it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, could, I doubt he would do another fiction movie, but... He certainly has the gift for it. Mm. <clears throat> Personally, I wouldn't watch it again. I don't think it's not oh, one, no, no. <clears throat> one I'll ever go back to. But it certainly, as I said, it wasn't. As, I'd really expected it to be awful, like yeah. bothering <laughs> on unwatchable. And seeing John Candy turn up, I was kind of like, oh, maybe this will be okay. And it was, yeah. yeah, it was, it was completely. I think saying passable is a bit harsh on it because it was fun. Mm. It was a good, yeah. fun movie to watch. For me, this era of comedy is well I can watch him at any time really even if they're like the worst of the worst <laughs> because they're always fun they're always cheeky and entertaining and um, yeah. I think this is sort of the last hurrah for this style of comedy because not long after you got the rise of sort of frat comedy with your American pies and yeah. your, mm. your gross out humour this sort of very very pointed very very satirical but cheeky Sort of Saturday Night Live sketch comedy style. This yeah, is one of the fun, sort of final throws. Yeah, I mean, for all it's, it has some very very dark moments. It is a PG. I don't remember much swearing in it. There's a sort of innocence about it, even at its most cynical, which is weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. but interesting movie. 
I think you can see maybe the kind of, as you're saying, with the kind of gross outs coming in. So it was 99 would have been American Pie. So yeah. about three, four years later. <clears throat> I think you can see the, the the first American Pie isn't, there is elements of gross out, but it's certainly not as oh, gross yeah. as the rest of them go. Yeah. And it's almost like that slow change from this style of comedy into that. And American Pie is the kind of point where it's in between the first yeah. American Pie. It stuck its foot in the gross out door and everything that mm. came after it sort of just yeah, I, you know, smashed it wide open. Stuck its dick in the gross out pie. But <laughs> I'm only going to go, go that for one. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> okay, so um, any final thoughts on Canadian bacon? I mean, I mean, as a male, I don't know. I've never had Canadian bacon willingly, so it might be okay. But the movies, the movie. Maple syrup. Coated bacon, it's um, good. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> literally, that's the time I've tried it. But yeah, um, I would. I, do you know what? If you're a completionist for Michael Moore, or if you just like an easy watch, I would give it a go. But yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> And on that, I think uh, we should pick who's uh, next. I think we should, yes. Uh, How many have we got? We have, yes, 417. So, random number generator, 1 to 417, comes out with director 344. Good, I don't have to scroll too much for this one. (laughs) 344 is somebody I'm going to have to look up. Oh, I don't know who it is. It's Satoshi Miki. So let's book it up. No idea. Wow. Brave new world that we're going into. Satoshi Miki. Writer, director. Um, Okay. Instant Swamp, I think, is the most popular one. Um, Japanese filmmaker who does sorts of quirky indie comedies. Okay. All right. Just instant swamp. This is sort of maybe puts a flavour of the director in your mind, but a quirky young woman who loves antiques and backs on a risky, on risky adventures and business endeavours with her eccentric friends, trying to score a unique item that will finally be worth a huge profit after her sacrificed savings or to open up a new shop. Whoever wrote that IMD, IMDb listing just needs to, you know, maybe don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I'm impressed by some of his film titles, including "Louder Can't Hear What You're Singing," "Wimp" from 2018, <laughs> and his latest fantastic. film, his latest film, "What to Do with the Dead Kaiju." Oh, that's fantastic! Yes, that a fantastic it's a title. genre no one's ever really uh, looked at before. And going back in his career, turtles swim faster than expected. Well, I, I don't know, really. <laughs> <laughs> was that... Yeah, that's... Uh, Turtles are surprisingly fast swimmers. Was that uh, released on Third Window? I'm glad... You, yeah, I, I've just clicked on the w- Wikipedia link, and yeah, it's got the uh, Third Windows cover as the so DVD nice. cover. Suzume Katagura is a barsed housewife who spends her days doing chores and taking, cares of her, taking care of her husband's pet turtle, as you do. <laughs> uh, one day she sees a wanted ad for spies. Hoping to get some excitement, she decides to give them a call. 
okay, that's <laughs> that's where we're going with this. Uh, that's <laughs> pretty great, what, actually. Yeah, you can make a whole podcast just reading synopsises from Satoshi Miki films. <laughs> So yeah, there we go, Satoshi Miki, um, one of the first episodes of season two, looking forward to that, that's really, I mean that's out of my comfort zone, I know Japanese cinema, but quirky Japanese cinema, that's that's an entirely new ball game we're, we're getting into there. Now it's time for a brief history of the United States of America. Hi boys and girls, ready to get started? Once upon a time there were these people in Europe called pilgrims, and they were afraid of being persecuted. So they all got in a boat and sailed to the new world where they wouldn't have to be scared ever again. Oh, I'm so relaxed. Ooh, I feel so much safer. But as soon as they arrived, they were greeted by savages, and they got scared all <laughs> over again. Intense! So they killed them all. Now, you'd think wiping out a race of people would calm them down, but no. Instead, they started getting frightened of each other. Witch! Witch! So they burned witches. In 1775, they started killing the British so they could be free. And it worked, but they still didn't feel safe. So they passed a Second Amendment which said every white man could keep his gun. I loves my gun. Loves my gun. Which brings us to the genius idea of slavery. You see, boys and girls, the white people back then were also afraid of doing any work. So they went to Africa, kidnapped thousands of black people, brought them back to America, and forced them to work very hard for no money. And I don't mean no money like I work at Walmart and make no money. I mean zero dollars. Not a zip! Doing it that way made the USA the richest country in the world. So did having all that money and free help calm the white people down? No way. They got even more afraid. That's because after 200 years of slavery, the black people now outnumbered the white people in many parts of the South. Well, you can pretty much guess what came next. The slaves started rebelling. There were uprisings. An old master's head got chopped off. And when white people heard of this, they were freaking out and going, I want to live. Don't kill me, big black man. Well, just in the nick of time came Samuel Coates, who in 1836 invented the first weapon ever that could be fired over and over without having to read. And all the southern whites were like, yee But it was too late. The North soon won the Civil War and the slaves were freed. Yep, they were free now to go chop all the old masters' heads off. And everybody was like, oh no, we're gonna die. But the freed slaves took no revenge. They just wanted to live in peace. But you couldn't convince the white people of this. So they formed the Ku Klux Klan. And in 1871, the same year the Klan became an illegal terrorist organization, another group was founded, the National Rifle Association. Soon politicians passed one of the first gun laws, making it illegal for any black person to own one. It was a great year for America, the KKK and the NRA. Of course, they had nothing to do with each other, and this was just a coincidence. One group legally promoted responsible gun ownership, and the other group shot and lynched black people. And that's the way it was all the way to 1955, when a black woman broke the law by refusing to move to the back of the bus. White people just couldn't believe her. Huh? Why won't she move? What's going on? Man, all hell broke loose. Black people everywhere started demanding their rights, and white people had a major freaky fear meltdown. And they were all like, run away, run away. And they did. They all ran flee into the suburbs where it was all white and safe and clean. And they went out and bought a quarter of a billion guns and put locks on the doors, alarms in the houses, and gates around the neighborhoods. And finally, they were all safe and secure and snug as a bug. And everyone lived happily ever after. So... We will jump into the second movie of the day, um, the one which we mentioned earlier, which brought him his notoriety, 2002's Balling for Columbine. Um, 
it's kind of hard to synopsize this one because it's not really a plot. It's it's yeah, argument, right? Hmm? Not a plot, but an argument. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's an argument presented from very from numerous um, directions. It, it starts off with a school shooting in Columbine and just sort of completes the image that surrounds that and explains things around that and why America is like this or, or what have you. It's mm. a very complete argument as a documentary. Yeah. it's. Um, I think looking at it is following on from quite a few years of turmoil in the States. Mm. He, Michael Moore, is looking at a way of addressing why there is so much gun violence is maybe the mm. best way to kind of... Yeah. To kind of look at it, um, I mean, it's yeah. I'll, I'll stop there because I, I, I was going to go on a bit of a rant. But I'll, I'll... No, I mean, <laughs> I, I think the thing I I haven't seen this before because um, okay. I did have a big chip on my shoulder. I did not like Michael Miller, and I cannot remember why. I'm absolutely <laughs> honest. But this was made last week, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's frighteningly evergreen. Yeah. And I don't I think, think I've ever seen a documentary like that before. I think for me, watching it again made me think that there are two questions you can ask about a Michael Moore documentary's facts. And the first one is, you know, is he right? You know, is the information in the documentary correct? And since it's come out, there's been claim and counterclaim about some of the uh, things that are in it. But the other one is, no, is he correct? And yes. the answer to the second one is obviously yes. It's like, I remember when there was that endless back and forth about this when it came out and some people were saying, ah, well, you know, he's fudged the chronology a bit on the NRA meeting. It wasn't straight after Columbine. I don't know if it was or it wasn't. There's so much, you know, back and forth over that. But the NRA do do that now. They had a big rally in Texas just after the Uvalde shooting. So, you know, mm. it, it's hard to object to their portrayal there when you know that even if they didn't do it then they would go on to do it over and over again yeah. in front of everyone yeah. yes it's interesting it's been I was going through my rewatch watch uh, a few of my schoolmates who I think I went to see this with them in the cinema when it came out yeah um, and I was watching it just saying they are using the same excuses 20 years ago that they were using two weeks ago yeah it is movies it's violent movies, it's violent video games, it's um, religion not getting taught in schools, it's um, uh, racial segregation. It's, it's, it's incredible. 20 years later, you're still talking about the same things and they still go back to the same point and they never, you see these fucking idiots like Ted Cruz and whatever other fucking hick that is in support of the NRA and the gun laws in the States that they just they, they, they have no, they've got this tunnel vision that it doesn't matter about well, how are we going to prevent kids from getting killed in schools, let's add more guns or let's add more police, it was 40% of the um, Uvalde I forget how to say the, the, the town's name, Uvalde I, I'm I'm saying it with confidence, but yeah. with no actual expertise. Like the forty percent of the town's budget is on police, and the police stood yeah, back and went, oh, "Fuck that! We're not going near that guy's got a gun." Like, and yeah, it, and, and twenty years ago, Michael Moore was talking about this, and these, and let's be honest, it's fucking Republicans. So you can't. Yes, Democrats have 
gun licenses and Democrats have gun... The Democrats are members of the NRA and there's <clears throat> Democrats that go into Walmart and buy alongside their chicken by six rounds for a fucking M16 or whatever type of guns they Worse have. Worse than that, if you open a bank account in uh, one side depicted here, you get yeah. a rifle if you open a bank account Which with a certain brand. a great example, I think, of Moore's ability to sweeten the really horrific stuff with a joke because the end of that section is just him asking, do you think it's a bit dangerous to hand out guns in a bank? Which <laughs> just always gets a massive laugh. But <laughs> it, it is a horrifying idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it, him himself, he's a, an NRA member. and Yeah. And the, well, he's upfront about that, isn't he? Yeah, well, right from the off, yeah, he yeah. doesn't hide it. No. Which is the, the right thing to do, I think. Yeah. But you're not hunting deer with a, a semi automatic. It's not very sporting, is it? No. 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 There's some things in this that I'd forgotten about that I thought are really staggeringly effective, really interesting. I mean, the, the stuff about. Because it's not just a movie about guns. He acknowledges that there are other countries that have as many guns as America. What they don't seem to have is as much gun crime. And he sort of examines the media and the way that the media creates a society where people are terrified that their own neighbours will kill them. And that's really effective because all the evidence he needs is in the public. He just needs to edit it. I just turn on the news. That's the the yeah. angle that he goes with that this is going to kill you if stuff that you won't know will save your life it's the media presents everything that it's debating and this do it or die sort of mentality mm. so it, he presents a very very good argument of basically a country on fire yeah and yeah it's um they talk about like there's a lot of um when you're going on about the news and the media and he speaks to the creator of cops, um, yeah, yeah. which is essentially promoting racial segregation. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, the well, show, haven't they? I'm it's... assuming. I mean, years ago, I, I maybe saw a few episodes, but yeah. um, it was said to him, why don't you chase a guy who's stolen millions from the public purse? Well, that wouldn't be as good. What's better? To, do you want to see a white guy running down... Um, Fifth Hollywood Avenue Boulevard, Fifth Avenue or something, yeah, yeah. Um, and getting chased by the police. Or do you want to see a black guy with his top off yeah. running through the streets at night in some slum? So that makes better TV. And it's, it's, it's calculated racial segregation. It's what they've done in the States for years well, in certain areas. Like 1920s. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's done done in, and it's um, amplified media, anyway. by media anyway. I mean, I don't know how often you've seen Fox News, but like I remember- I every time they say something like more stupid than usual, I'm made mm-hmm. aware of it. Yeah. I remember one time I was in um, Thailand and the only English channel was Fox News. Yeah. <clears throat> it was on the TV and I watched it and it, it, like it's all murdock and it's all run by the, that this mm. guy who has his own agenda and he's starting to bring it into the UK as well, which is really worrying. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it was Hannity was the guy's name. And the amount of coverage this guy was getting and the amount of um, just nonsense, like not even fact. They don't News in America doesn't need to be fact. It just needs to be loud enough. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's all opinion-led. And it's like yeah. one of the things that I found slightly heartening, what, one of the few things I found heartening about British politics recently is that every time someone starts a new news outlet, whether it's GB News or Talk TV or anything like that, 
they always think, oh, yeah, the public will want more of opinion. And they put it out and it dies on their ass because people, newspaper owners understand that you, you use the opinion pieces as kind of a bit of propaganda that's snuck mm-hmm. under the door. People buy a newspaper, find out what who won the football last night, see what's on telly last night, mm-hmm. maybe see a bit of the headlines, and all of the really poisonous shit just gets absorbed passively. And it's like, I can understand how that's a good propaganda model, but I'm not going to turn on my TV to watch Tom Newton Dunn with his fucking radar dish ears rambling on about nothing. What, what, mm. Why would I want to do that? Or the guy that used to be the like the showbiz editor for The Sun, Dan Wooten, <laughs> who's now a political correspondent on GB News, and you're sitting going, oh, Honestly, not just not ready for prime time, is he? No, no, he's really not. He's not ready for any fucking time. The man's a massive, massive bell end, <laughs> and, he's, oh, yeah. and he's he's so stupid as well. He's not clever. That's the thing about these these people as well. They're so they're so they've got so much conviction in their idiocy. Yeah, they've got a kind of debating society smart yeah. where you can just sort of come out with some bullshit confidently and move the conversation on yeah. if it flops, but. There's no actual analytical skill there. No. I see what's happening here. You turn it into a political podcast. <laughs> Swave this car a little bit. It's very easy to do it because we're so alike. I mean, just on yeah. that, just to find a final cool movie. Um, a documentary. Oh, yeah. Uh, the fact that Piers Morgan went off to do his own thing uh, on a channel um, had a great first week, and then I think it's about 10,000 people. Watching 90% of its audience, according to the latest pop bitch newsletter, which, yep, couldn't happen to a nicer side of ham. Yeah, mm. He has a habit of, it's not, he presents the facts in a very sobering way, um, but he also gets to the humanity of the story. There's some really, really horrible moments that just really bring into focus how sort of hopeless this situation is. I'm assuming um, you're not meaning Piers Morgan and you're meaning yeah, Michael sure. Moore. You, know, you, know, you, know, you were talking about Piers Morgan and then went on. Uh, Piers, he makes some good points. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. But um, it's like the bit where he interviews uh, Charlton Heston. That's oh, yeah, almost unwatchable because of how horrible it is. Um, yeah. He says, look at this picture of this six-year-old girl that was shot by a six-year-old boy. And yeah. the shutters go down devastating bit of the Heston interview to me is just before it where he has that interview with the teacher who, you know, that incident happened in her class and it cuts straight to Heston on stage at the NRA convention with his cold dead hands line. It's like, I know that's a manipulative cut. I know I'm being manipulated, but in that moment... I just fucking hated Charlton Heston. I think it's a brutally effective piece of editing. Mm-hmm. I mean, these don't think that. I think that's the the thing that this movie sort of gets to the heart of. None of this stuff exists in a vacuum. Yeah, it's all influencing each other. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all manipulation upon manipulation. Whereas I think it's uh, Marilyn Manson um, says, "I'm blamed for all this sort of stuff." I mean, he's a horrible person. You know, it, yeah, that maybe anyway. hasn't dated quite as well, but well, still. But what he says is nobody's asked these kids about what they think, about what they feel. Mm. It's all blaming it on gun vi- on them um, movies, on TV shows, and video games, but never talking to the kids. Mm-hmm. It's um, the Marlon Manson thing. I made a note of it, and I remember being really taken aback by 
when I first saw this movie, the way he spoke, because I never knew really much about Marlon Manson apart from the image. And yes, now what you've heard how he is, he's mm. he's a horrible, horrible bastard. He'll get the jail maybe. I don't know what will happen to him. He'll pay a fine probably what will happen over there. Um, and But at the time, he was making really good points. Like he yes, said, yeah. um, I'm being blamed for violence in Columbine because they listened to Marlon Manson. But what else has been forgotten about? It's, um, there was no, there was more bombs dropped in a foreign country than ever had been dropped that day. Mm-hmm. Um, there, Everyone forgot about Monica Lewinsky, is one of the lines he uses as well. And he says, mm-hmm. and then they turn the focus on to me because I look different. And yeah. that is what it was. And these guys, as, as you were saying, Rob, like no one... Ask them, and I think Michael Mill says, what would you say to those boys? He says, I wouldn't say anything. I'd ask them what they think or what they are feeling. Mm, moments like that. I think that's maybe maybe simplifying their their mindset a wee bit in terms of how they viewed the world at the point. I mean, they, there was a... There was, um, a thing where they had there was a, a news a cut for a news report and it says the guys uh, the two killers had um, fantasized about flying a plane into New York and this was Which, 1999 wow. yeah like yeah. and it's so there's weird kind of um, mirror images maybe the wrong type of phrase but That's yeah it's certainly quite predictive isn't mm. it yeah, you know, it yeah. wasn't a comfortable watch in two thousand and two, but there are bits no. of it that are uncanny now. I mean, particularly mm-hmm. at the start of it, where he's talking to the Michigan militia um, oh, yeah. set up in his home state, and it's like on on the one hand, I, I mean. I was around in the 90s. I remember that every other week there was a documentary about some American militia. It was just one of those sort of cows that documentarians were milking all the time. But there's an uncanny moment in this. And I think even back then, Moon knew that this was something important. Where these guys uh, are asked, you know, why why they're like retreating to the woods and arming themselves and preparing for war, you know, why are you doing this? And one of the militia members says, Well, when you know, when when it all kicks off, who's gonna who's gonna protect your kids? Do you think the cops are gonna do with that? And of course you watch this after, as you said, Andrew, the, the Uvalde shooting, and you think, Yeah, they're not, are they? And that has a whole different resonance. Now, I don't think I picked up on that when I first watched it, because I think I was still in that mindset of, oh yeah, these guys are cranks. But they are I mean, too. But probably are cranks. But still, that moment is is quite eerie. I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it just that segment just shows how broken, I guess, America is. That there's these people out in the sticks. I don't know where it was. I think it was uh, Mich- in Michigan, Michigan, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, they're so disillusioned with everything that they don't trust anybody. And that's just sort of a, an icon for everything that the documentary goes on to say, how the news media is so manipulative and corrupt. Mm-hmm. How it fosters this um, sort of environment of fear across the country that these things, these little groups, are inevitable. Yeah. And yeah. the way that guns are so readily available, he does many bits where it shows just how easy it is to get a gun. The bank bit is one of them. And there's a scene later on with some survivors of um, Columbine that he goes to the, the headquarters of Kmart with. 
That's a great bit. Just yeah, to prove a point, you take the kids say, oh, we should go and get some bullets. So they go to the local Kmart and buy all of the bullets. No problem. Not not a bit of grief whatsoever. Well, yeah. they're, they're returning the merchandise, aren't they? That's the uh, rationale behind it. They still have bullets from Columbine lodged in their body. So yeah. they're returning it to the store where the shooters bought it, which is just a savage, brilliant idea, I think. Hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, what, what he does well is he shows a few kind of talking about the militia earlier on. He also has, um, is it James Nichols near the start? The brother yeah, of the yeah. Omaha bombing. Ah, yes. Um, and that guy is on a different level for the militia. Like yeah. he is. He he's talking about he's an anarchist, and he, he, he. I think he uses. There's a lot of cracks out there when he talks about. There's a lot of cranks out there when he talks about why he keeps a magnum under his pillow. Yeah, and then it goes. He to does as well. And yeah. he does. Yeah, he shows. Uh, we don't see it, but he shows that. Um, one of the things I thought, going back to the media, was kind of the when they're reporting on the the six year old getting murdered by the classmate, and yeah. it's the kind of behind the scenes of the actual media. Uh, yeah. How blasé yeah. they are about it! Like the guy's talking about his hair and everything. There's no kind of somberness at all about it. It's just so. It's like a, a great shot there where he mm. just the cameraman just walks past all of the the camera crews stood there. And the narrator, Michael Moore says, if he just went a few blocks over the other way, they'd understand why this keeps on happening. So it's yeah. got like a shot with the circus and the reality at the same time, which yeah, I think it's the only way you can really tell a story like this. Mm-hmm. A bit about the um, the mum who of the the same mother, but obviously not mother, but the six year old who shot who had two jobs and it was an hour and a half drive there, an hour and a half drive back and yeah, poverty, that's what as was saying earlier on, talking about Canadian bacon, it, it's quite a, a through line in a lot of his um, movies, documentaries um, going back to why there is this level of tragedy I'm glad you mentioned that because that bit with the the mother of the kid always gets overshadowed and left behind when people talk about this film and I do think, you know, if someone was ask, trying to ask me, all right, what, what's good about Michael Moore? You agree with him, yeah, but what's actually cinematically good about Michael Moore? You could show them that clip because it's just beautifully constructed, compassionate journalism. And I think it's an undervalued strength of his. Yeah. Mm. So um, any closing thoughts on Balling for Columbine? I just wanted to bring up the animation scene in it, yes. which I thought yes. was great. I don't know who done that because obviously you have Matt Stone early on a wee bit. Is it yeah, Matt Stone, they, Trey Parker? Uh, Matt, Stone. Matt Stone, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if it's them that done that, but the animation is very South Parkish. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. Like going, Basically, it's a history of white American paranoia. Yes. Is essentially what it is. It's like we... The pilgrims were scared of the English, so they moved to America, and then they were scared of the uh, the Native Americans, so they shot them, and then they get scared of each other, and then they get scared of the black, and it's it's a fantastic or well, parody is maybe the wrong word, but um, summing up really about why there's, there there can yes. be the issues there is. Um, I thought that I thought that, that's mm-hmm. one of the highlights of it as well. There's just lots of great scenes. Is again, I keep using the wrong word, but great. Um, uh, summing up all of the issues that there is. Yes. Graham? 
Yeah, I would agree. I think there's there's some tremendous material in it, and the stuff that hasn't aged well is far outnumbered by the stuff that has. And just every time I see Moore's films, I'm always reminded of how skillful he is at constructing a documentary narrative. You know, he gets talked about as just a rabble rouser, but I think certainly in the years after Fahrenheit 9-11, a lot of people tried to do their own kind of Michael Moore film, Mm. and nobody did it as well. And I think it it is worth studying for that reason alone. Mm. I just want to make one last point about the Charlton Heston thing as well. I never really mentioned anything about that as much. Um, it's, It's... an argument that the the gun holders or the people that want to have guns in the states always use and always fall back on the same thing. They mentioned the Second Amendment, which is the first thing they say. Well, I've got a right to bear arms. Said, but but why do you want to have them? And say, well, why is there more? Because he's talking about the violence in America, and then Heston then goes, well, you know, we've got a lot of blood in our hands in the states. Mm. He says, no, but what about Germans? What about uh, the, Brits? the Brits? Yeah. What about yeah. them? Oh well, we we've got mixed ethnicity, and it's the same bullet points that they always go back to. These guys that want to have their guns for protection, and this is obviously yeah. an audio medium, so you can't see the the quotation marks. But um, <laughs> I think you can it, hear them though in a straight. Yeah, protection. <laughs> yeah, um, it's something they always go back to, and obviously Heston took that on that interview on because Michael Moore mentioned I'm an NRA member, so he would have went, oh, brilliant propaganda for the NRA and he just got totally jumped on it was great it's I think it's the best thing that Michael Mills done personally is the the Heston interview it's fearless fearless documentary Megan that interview I just wanted to make that point because I I, I kind of I I, I forgot to mention it at the time but it's it's the 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 typical response when people get questioned about their um, their gun ownership is what they always go back on and the violence in America yeah. Um, so, Michael Miller as a director, I'll have to lean on you two for this one because honestly, these are the only two I've seen. Right. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of hard to make an assessment with two very, very different but still incredibly politically charged movies. But mm-hmm. you two seem to have experienced more of them. So, as a director, what do you two think? I think Canadian bacon aside, like, take, I think you need to keep that on its own. Because it is so. Like, yes, there's similar um, similar humour to how he makes his documentaries, but it really is a kind of standalone feature. Um, in terms of his documentary filmmaking, um, I think Columbine was his best. I think Columbine is probably the best documentary that's ever been made, personally. Um, over whatever genre you want to cover, um, I just think it's so well made that the the, the the horrible points it has to tackle are done with a lot of heart and a lot of um, the right trigger points. That, mm. that, as I said, for me, an age where I was politically inactive, and I'm still fairly politically inactive, but it, it, um, it made me realise what angers me. Um, yeah. And I think documentary-wise, he's not been better. He has made great documentaries as well in terms of Fahrenheit 9-11 was really good, possibly retreading a wee bit of some of the Columbine stuff. I think Sickle is great. We, That's one I haven't seen. I must get yeah. my own. So Sickle's all about... It focuses uh, it focuses on the healthcare, but it's also a lot about the um, the victims of 9-11 who were like the fallout victims, like the yeah. inhalation from the dust and the smoke and everything, and them being denied healthcare 
through the US system and going to Cuba to get support. Um, and he takes them to Cuba basically for their healthcare, where they couldn't afford the the healthcare they wanted here in here. Yeah, in the states, we'll give it time. It'll probably here as well. They couldn't afford it in the states, so he took them to Cuba to get the the inhalers they needed, the the oxygen machines they needed, and it's it's a really interesting uh, look into the American healthcare system. Um, I think he's an excellent documentary maker. As I said, that Born for Columbine is the epitome of and is the the bar that is kind of political documentaries in any documentary for me. Okay. Yeah, I think it, it's doing this has persuaded me to go back and rewatch uh, some of his work because I'd seen most of it uh, when it came out. Um, but there's always a trap you fall into with Moore into thinking that he's a topical filmmaker. And he is, obviously. He makes movies about things that are covered right now. But you can also point to a lot of things like Sicko and like a lot of the things in Bowling for Columbine where he is significantly ahead of issues that people would only start talking about years later. And, you know, you can even see it in Canadian Bacon. For all that the comedy is hit and miss, the actual political points of Canadian Bacon haven't really aged. You know, there is still this massive problem that the defence industry has an outsized place in America and Britain's economy because national security is the one thing that you can't outsource. Hmm. And, you know, that, that creates its own problems that, you know... you like Eisenhower said in his farewell speech it could get to the point where you have to go to war otherwise what are you spending all this money for um, so I, I think it's it's interesting to look back on these films and look at things yes things where you can say oh that's very 2002 I remember people were talking about that then but it, it makes me admire him even more to recognise all the ways in which he was significantly ahead of the curve. I mean, who in the American media was talking about healthcare in 2007? Wasn't a thing. I just do not remember that being on the cards at all. Yeah. Um, for me, I, uh, just a quick statement, but uh, I think it's very easy to be a political um, documentarian and batter people with hard-hitting points with a hammer. But I think it's very, very hard to be a political filmmaker and be just as powerful by having a light touch. Yeah. It's very easy to get wrong. And that Michael Moore has managed that, I think, is a credit to his skill as a storyteller, mm. skill as a journalist. Yeah. Whether the success, I don't know. But off the back of these two, that is his greatest contribution as a director, I think. Mm. So I know you were saying, Rob, before that you'd put off watching this for so long. I honestly can't remember. Aye. Um, but what were, What did you think then? I thought it's an excellent documentary. Mm. Um, it's just very alarming sort of shifts in tone. Yeah. But I think that sort of imitates the news, doesn't it? Where, uh, or the, like the morning breakfast shows, where it has a story about uh, some illness or something. It's now we've got some stories of puppies. Let's go <laughs> and see the puppies. It's the anchor man. It's, it's like Anchorman. Here's Nutty the Squirrel riding a a, a wakeboard. It's, like, I think the way he structured it, at least, at least, is also a parody of the way that news is is structured. It's it's yeah. serious light, serious light, serious light, and you could call that tonal whiplash. But I think it's also kind of a statement at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah, intentional. It is, yeah, which is shrewd. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm just assigning him something which 
isn't really there. But that's, that was my take on it, at least. No, I think it's it's pro- it's possibly true. My memory of Fahrenheit nine eleven, which I do want to revisit sometime now, is that it has a much more linear kind of emotional arc. There's some funny stuff towards the beginning, and then it just gets darker and darker. Yeah, I think the structure of Bowling for Columbine is definitely like very purposeful. I don't mm. think there's anything in here that's accidental. Yeah. Yeah, Fahrenheit 9 is more about the... It's less uh, news style and more conspiracy style, if I remember it rightly. It's been okay. a while. It's more about the Saudis getting um, like transported out of the States just after the, the planes hit. Um, and Bin Laden's family, I think it was, that get on private jets out of the US before. It's, it's, it's more based around the kind of... Um, Maybe he's not looking at it as much as um, uh, paranoia and conspiracy theory, but he's certainly reporting on those theories at the time more hmm. more than what this is purely factual and looking at the state of the states. My main memory of Fahrenheit 9-11 is all the stuff in the second half about Iraqi civilian casualties, hmm. which is shatteringly dark yeah. and... You know, there have been documentaries made about this before, but I saw it at my local Cineworld, and it is a a pretty sobering thing to see at your local Cineworld. Oh, yes. Definitely. Thank you. Can you just stop stalling and answer the question, what is your third favourite movie of all time? Paddington 2. What?! Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, Paddington 2, connect those dots. I mean, I don't want to be a snob, but... I cried through the entire thing and made me want to be a better man. Bullshit, Mom! <laughs> Paddington 2 is incredible. I fucking told you. So that brings us to the final part of the show, in which we, uh, we talk about some of the other movies that you've been watching, aside from those by... Michael Moore. So, who wants to have a crack first? I've watched a lot since I was on last week. (laughs) Sorry, I'll rephrase that since I didn't record them with you last week. Um, I finally saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is in my top two of the year, um, alongside the the Batman. (laughs) But that's because I love Batman. (laughs) Um, uh, It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it, genuinely. it's so great. Like I don't gush too much over it, but I've genuinely and I was worried it was going to be a wee bit too long. It'd been kind of close to two and a half hours, but it absolutely flew in. There's absolutely no fat on it. It's something to see to believe. I think. Um, I also saw the unbearable weight of massive talent. But I still haven't got around to that. It's just an absolute warm hug of a movie. Like it's such a great buddy movie with Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage. Um, He's had a, a weird career trajectory, hasn't he? <laughs> Definitely. But this takes it all on board. It's it's great. It's absolutely a must watch. I do think Nicolas Cage is great, but probably not for the same reason that people usually say that. People usually cite his manic performances, but I think yeah. he's at his best when he's got the sort of warm characters like. Uh, Raising Arizona, I think, yeah. is probably his my favourite role of his because he's just brilliant in that. Have you seen Pig? I haven't, no. He's fantastic in Pig. And that's really understated. Nicholas Cage, mm. like, he's just playing this sombre guy that's gutted about losing his pig, but it, it's 
bit more complicated sound than it sounds. Yeah, like his uh, his great era, and then his divorce bill era. <coughs> yeah, um, which I think people fell in love with the sort of the, the manic crap he was in. Mm. But he, he seems like he's come out the other side, and he's gone back to making genuinely good yeah. roles and good right. movies. Um. I think we else have been watching something, um, something and before we move on from the unbearable weight of massive talent something Andrew said really intrigued me where you said it was a buddy movie and it suddenly mm. struck me when was the last time I saw a new buddy comedy when was the last time one was at the cinema I'm struggling maybe Stitch the other guys maybe Step Brothers the other guys or um, Nice Guys yeah, yeah, yeah Nice like Guys that. is very good yeah. I like that movie that's quite a dark Shane Black isn't it um, yeah but yeah, I mean, I'll probably get Lynch for saying this, but Ryan Gosling cannot act drunk. I'm sorry, but he can't. <laughs> <laughs> nice guy, is great. Oh. I kind of look forward to his interpretation of Ken in the weird Greta, Greta Gerwig oh God, yeah, Barbie she movie. Literally, she literally seems to be doing Barbie in the multiverse of madness with that thing. It's absolutely <laughs> bananas. Um, I watched something else this week, and I can't remember. I, I re-watched Host just because it's great. Um, uh, I watched them um, when watching the boys and uh, the first episode of Miss Marvel, which was fantastic. Actually, really good. Really enjoyed. It's very, it. very important series that I think just for representation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was good. It was really good, though. It wasn't just good because of representation. Yeah, it was actually really enjoyable. Um, Kamala Khan. I don't know the exact uh, name of the actress who plays her. She was fantastic in it. Um, I've watched for the first time the today the Hell House LLC Part Three. Don't know if any of you yes. seen any of the Hell House LLC movies, the found footage movies. There is one. <laughs> there is one thing on. I think it's on Shudder, isn't it? There's one thing on Shudder today that I really want to see. Uh, Mad, Mad Mad Dog God. is it called? Mad God. Mad, Mad, Mad God. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's the uh, Phil Tippett. Yeah. yeah, Phil Tippett. Yeah, that, that looks making or something. That looks yeah. like Dante's Inferno levels are fucked up, like the game Dante's Inferno. If you've ever played that, well, um, no, I, I haven't. I was genuinely thinking that works as a comparison to like the 14th century epic poem. I think it still works as a comparison. <laughs> yeah. It looks along those lines, just all sorts of craziness. Um, I watched something else, and I can't remember what it was, so I'll take my leave at that. Graham? A couple of things uh, I've watched that I think might be of interest to listeners. I finally got round to watching Titan, uh, the Julia DeCorno film, which I was just head over heels for. I remember watching, I don't remember if we ever discussed Raw, but my feelings on Raw was that it's got some good stuff in it, but it ends just at the point where it's about to become great, and I was really frustrated by that. Maybe that's a a decision, a creative decision, because some directors are horrible trolls like that <laughs> uh, I think it, it, it's she definitely knows what she's doing and I definitely didn't approve of it um, <laughs> but Titan starts at the like exact level of madness that Raw ended on and then just accelerates from there it was amazing and I would love to know how this role was pitched to Agatha Roussel, who had, had <laughs> yes. not acted in a feature film before this. It's quite a full-on performance for her. It's like, yeah, I, I can only compare it to like Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant or Isabella Adjani in Possession. It's that kind of 
absolutely everything, you know, full-on hysteria yeah. in every single scene kind of performance. I think he, was, he probably in when you drop the bit, oh, says, you, a car will impregnate you in one scene. Um, and that's the sort of, are you still on board or are you running out the room as quickly as you can moment? It's probably true, yeah. I am... Um... I wasn't on board, but I didn't run away, um, <laughs> and uh, it really wasn't for me. But I can I get why oh, people like it, but it was divisive. Yeah, it wasn't. I, I, no, I really didn't like it. But I mean, I can, uh, what, it's just not for me. What was he called? Um, oh, history of violence. His name's completely uh, blanked. Cronberg. Not Dave Cronberg. He was lead actor. Oh, Viggo, Viggo Mortensen. Viggo Mortensen is not a fan. He's went oh, quite on record, yeah. Vico Mortensen was just going around the Cannes Film Festival starting beef with anyone who's crossed Cronenberg, which I think is adorable, by the way. <laughs> and Cronenberg says, I like it, I think it's cool. Yeah. Uh, still not get a UK release for Crimes of the Future either. Maddening, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really harshing the buzz on my body horror summer uh, mm. that we don't have a release date for. <laughs> mm. Love that you have a name for it, though. Um, so some other things i think one thing that i don't think we've ever had in the uh other things you've been watching section we've had some tv we've had some movies lots of different stuff but we've never done stand-up shows have we we've never had a stand-up absolutely not no but Mm. please i mean how it's hard to think of review comedy though i mean yeah Mm. it's just pointless at the end of the day but what works for works. There's obviously a craft to it, but I also don't want to analyse it like that while I'm watching it. But I've never really been a big stand-up watcher, but I feel like there's a generation of comedians now where I know them off podcasts or panel shows, and yes. I will happily describe myself as a fan of them, despite never having seen their stand-up. And I just thought, hmm, that's a bit weird, you should do something about that. Uh, so I watched a show called Generation Boy Band Fan by the Danish comedian Sophie Hagen. Uh, okay. I'd been a big fan of them for the obvious reason that you'd be a fan of a comedian, which is I like listening to a podcast where she talks about true crime with the psychiatrist <laughs> Dr. Julie Shaw and so the, the normal way that people get into comedians. Um, but I've never seen some of stand-up. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a show built around her rediscovery of some erotic Westlife fan fiction that they wrote when they were 13, which is... <laughs> Obviously, a gold mine of humour. Um, <laughs> I particularly like their description of uh, what that they they learned English from watching the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So the Irish dialect in their fan fiction is it's not great. It's not very authentic <laughs> to the co- country and the culture. I mean, I, s- I sympathise with that entirely. I, mean, I haven't seen anything by uh, James A. Caster or Ed Gamble, but a love off menu. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? A- I've never seen Gamble stand up, but A. Caster is a genius. I think his stand up is incredible. Okay, um, but Hagen. I admired that they managed to work in some quite dark material in it because they also went through a lot of mental health problems as a teenager as well as writing explicit stories about members of Westlife frotting each other, which, you know, (laughs) probably didn't help if I'm thinking about it. But they managed to incorporate some really sensitive and some really unsettling material about mental health into it in a way that doesn't kill the vibe at all and i was really impressed by that okay 
Um, stand up for me. I watched um, most recently Scottish comic called Mark Nelson. Um, has his stand up, his first recorded stand up free on YouTube. Nice. Um, I think it's called Don't Call It a Comeback. And it's good. It's kind of classic stand up style in um, a kind of local, well known comedy club called The Stand. Um, and it's really good. Worth checking out uh, if nice. we're talking about stand ups. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Give that watch. It's free. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Sophie Hagen show I mentioned is free on YouTube as well. I think they released it uh, like when the pandemic was on and all theatres were closed. So that was a nice gesture. Yeah. Okay. So uh, for myself, um, I'll start with the one which will probably get people to hate me, but uh, Chunking Express from uh, Wong Kar Wai. Um, after I watched Fallen Angels, uh, his 1995 film, it was the first uh, Wong Kar Wai movie, absolutely head over heels in love with it. It's just aesthetic, it's vibe, everything about it. It's when you watch a, a movie the first time, think, is this my favourite movie now? I think it is, you know. <laughs> and then I found out that Chunking Express was the one that they did before it that's sort of a prequel in the same universe. Yeah, I think... Fallen Angels was like because Chunking Express is two stories, and I think originally Fallen Angels was gonna one of the strands in Fallen Angels was gonna be the third story, but he said it felt too much like its own thing, so yeah. he cut it and made a different movie around it. Um, that one, well, Chunking Express is um, it's more about relationships of people who have mental health issues, and it seems really, really mental health issues stem from rejection from just the way that. Hong Kong is at that point in time but again it feels horrible to say this the reason why I don't like is because I didn't like the characters at Mm. all Yeah, Um, and on a a movie which is basically you're following uh, four characters, two characters in each half around Hong Kong shot handheld, getting in all the the sights and brilliantly shot by Christopher Doyle but just didn't like it It's Mm. I couldn't get on the, the wavelength of the characters which I think is the it's the hook that you, the entire film hangs, really. I think the last Kawaii film I watched was uh, My Blueberry Nights, which I watched for Pop Screen, a new podcast from the Geek Show chronicling movies either starring by or about pop stars. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't have that problem with Chunking Express, but I did have that problem with My Blueberry Nights. And I think I, I wonder if maybe the thing is that once the sort of spell of it slips, once you stop being kind of enchanted by the mood and the style, once you actually look at Wong Kar Wai's characters, there's some right assholes there. There's some oh, very oh, annoying yes. people in his movies. Yes, indeed. I mean, the, the guy at the beginning who keeps on going about a girl that dumped him in one for go, I said, come on, you're being a creepy <laughs> stalker now. <laughs> and that's the sort of level it pitched at, I think, which kind of took me out of it. Um, other movies I've watched, uh, don't need to watch this ever again. I could talk about it for about an hour in my sleep. Uh, Tremors. Oh, right. I don't know what the sort of cultural reaction or perception is to this one, but genuinely it's just a movie which I could watch a hundred times over and never fall out of love with because it's it's just fun. It's a fun yeah. uh, creature feature. It's probably the reason why I like creature feature movies, I'll be honest. It doesn't get the same kind of relevance as like your Ghostbusters or anything, like, uh, reverence, sorry, as like a Ghostbusters or something like that, but it certainly feels like it should. It's, an, it's pitched at the same sort of level, sort of like very mm. laddish. Not laddish, that's a horrible term. Why did I say that? <laughs> mm. 
very sort of a buddy comedy um, with Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. Just the chemistry is through the roof. The creatures are amazing. It's got a, what's he called? The the weird Chinese guy who was in everything in the 1990s, uh, Victor Wong. He was also in, uh, what was it? A Big Trouble in Little China. He's in a lot of movies just playing sort of a hyper-energetic Chinese guy who's always got guns for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) It was weird. It was the 90s. But yeah, it's just, it's a comfort movie for me. And yeah, I mean, it might be trashy. It might be silly. It might have more sequels than it ever should have had. I think it's five now. And there was a TV series. Which is milking it about as dry yeah. as you can possibly get. I think I think they've milked it of all of its ideas after the second one, honestly. But <laughs> the first one, it's yeah, it's pure nineties gold, I think, honestly. Um, and also I finished watching Van Helsing on Netflix, which was good for four seasons and then it turned into an anime. Which I've seen it. I'm not yeah, saying that as a well, it, it's about vampires. It, it turns Dracula into a woman. Um, it suggests that her power is sort of like a mystical dark energy called the Dark One. Um, Vanessa Van Helsing is the lead character who bites vampires and they become human. It's got all of these things going on, which are like wild deviations from the vampire farmer. And then at the end of the series, series five, she's got like uh, electric stuff coming out of her hands and telekinetic powers and sort of weird anime shit. Okay. And I've never seen a, a series sort of crap itself so comprehensively in the final season as this. <laughs> yes. Which stems the breaks, I guess, isn't it? Stems the breaks, yeah. Um, anything else? Anybody has got anything to mention? Any final throws out there? Just seen that A24, and uh, Graham, you'll understand this, straight from the desk of Deirdre Bobeirdre, Auditor of the Month, Trophy Candle. <laughs> oh man yeah um, handmade trophy candle there you go crafted by artisans oh, yeah I'm glad you said artisans there I heard the start of that and wasn't sure where you were going <laughs> okay so for episode one of season two of Directors and Cut that is it so, Graham, where else can we, we find you and your stuff on the internet? Well, most straightforwardly, I'm on Letterboxd. Just search for Graham Williamson and Twitter and Instagram at Graham W Film. I do also run Pop Screen, a podcast from The Geek Show, uh, where we cover movies about pop stars. And I write for The Geek Show, Horrified, and I've just started as we record this i've just uh had my first piece put up on we are cult hmm. excellent uh, andy um find me at, uh, at where is nowhere the road to nowhere podcast where we cover comic books sci-fi and horror movies um also we've got a kind of subcategory direct a uh, direct to nowhere um which we get a guest on to discuss a director a favorite director of theirs and three other movies um you can find me personal Twitter at Nowhere Andy. Um, that's really, that's pretty much it. Then we also have an Instagram. I don't run that, so I don't know what that's called. But we to know where Instagram, but uh, somewhere. Excellent. Now check out all of those fingers out. But uh, until the next episode, I am Rob, and this was Directors Uncut. <laughs>